Welcome to the Discovering Our Scars podcast. We share personal experiences so we can learn from each other. I'm Steph. And I'm Beth. I've been in recovery for 16 years and am the author of Discovering My Scars, my memoir about what's done in the darkness eventually comes to light. I'm a lawyer turned pastor who's all about self-awareness and emotional health because I know what it's like to have neither of those things. Beth and I have been friends for years, have gone through a recovery program together, and when I wanted to start a podcast, she was the only name that came to mind as co-host. I didn't hesitate to say yes, because I've learned a lot from sharing personal experiences with Steph over the years. We value honest conversations, and we hope you do too. On today's show, we're going to have an honest conversation titled, Discovering My Scars, Chapter 4. Then we'll share a slice of life, and the show will close with questions for reflection. We'll invite you to reflect on the conversation in your own life. So this is something that we have been doing for three episodes so far. Yes. Because this is the fourth. Um, so we are going through my book, Discovering My Scars, um, going through each chapter, and we are basically listening to the audiobook and kind of pausing between to discuss it in a little bit more in depth. Yeah, it's like a glimpse behind the scenes because I get to ask you questions about about what you cover in that chapter. Yeah. Yeah. So this is something I've been wanting to do since we started the podcast. So it only took a couple years in a pandemic <laughs> for that to happen. And uh, do you want to address that you think you sound weird? I just feel like I my, like my voice sounds nasally or congested or and it's just because suddenly the weather is cold. It's and by and cold, I'm just, I'm just a very I'm just a very delicate human. It is actually 42, <laughs> which sounds cold. Yeah. But maybe for people that aren't in Florida, that does not sound cold. Right. No, this is like extreme Arctic weather for us. <laughs> and also, I should say, we don't record outside. We're inside where it's climate controlled. So I really shouldn't have an issue. And yet I do. So, yeah. Well, thank you for addressing that. Uh, that was the um, elephant in the room. And we also have two greyhounds in the room, just so to yes. clarify that. Yes. And they smell great. And they are elephant sized. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Baby elephant. A greyhound is a large animal. I like a baby elephant, though. Okay. Yeah. I mean, a baby elephant. I mean, these are no, like, Maltese, you know. Yeah, but tiny. when you stack them next to each other, they're just, like, the size of an average big dog. Because they're really skinny. <laughs> it's, it's super true. cute when they stand next it's to each true. other. It's like, oh, it's, like, the normal size. That's why you have, have to get two. Because, like, one is not enough. And two equals the same as one big dog. Yeah, it's just a lot of legs. It is a lot of, a legs. Lot of legs. They're And they're long and skinny. <laughs> yeah, and you don't want to break those. No. They're hardy, though. They're hardy dogs. And they're very sweet, actually. Well, speaking of dogs, actually, I got Mac while I was writing this book. Mm. And that was something that I was like towards the end. Like the whole process was was just a whole challenge for me. But towards the end, it was really hard to, you know, realize that this was going in the world and to finalize everything. And um, and I adopted happened to adopt her right towards the end, and she really helped give me the push to finish this book. So, um, so it's very fitting that she is here along with my second dog that I just love so much. So Macintosh are here with us. All right, let's get started. Chapter four: Community College. In middle school, I started taking birth control pills to regulate my hormones because I had really painful periods. But as a middle schooler and then high schooler who is not sexually active, I hated being on the pill. Picking my prescription up from the store embarrassed me. At age 18, when I started community college, I wanted to be done with the pill. I had taken it for six years and thought my periods wouldn't be so bad anymore. So I stopped. I didn't think much about it or try to take note of things that might be different. I just enjoyed my life and community college. I want to say... This little section right here, I think is probably best favorite part of my book. Um, 
And the reason for that is because I learned when we did our period episode that Beth really does not enjoy talking about periods. You are right. I do not like talking about periods. And actually, even when I reread this chapter preparing for the episode, I was like, why'd she put that in her book? (laughs) Because it does have context, though. It does. It It has context. And I did debate about it. Like, do I do I write this? You know, you want to know a fun fact? I'm on my period right now. Is that a, is you do not need to know that. No one, literally no one needs to know why, that except you. Why is there shame in... There's no shame. But y- by saying that it's not appropriate to say it, you're putting shame on no, it. No, there's, yes. no, there's no shame. There, it's just irrelevant. What if I said I'm experiencing depression right now? Well, that would be different. How is that different? Because that's a natural thing that people go through, same as a period. Yeah, but you're... But depression can affect the way that you you relate to others. So, like, I would want to know that. Okay. Whereas, <laughs> okay, the you're fact saying that you're on your cycle is kind of like you're irrelevant s- to me. Are you serious though? Yeah. You know how much your emotions are different when you're on your period. Come on. No, I think that's called, an important thing to know. Premenstrual syndrome. Pre. Pre. pre no, pre. I mean my mood is definitely different when I'm on my period. Hmm. Like right now when I'm like upset with you for telling me that it's not okay to, it feels like you're shitting on me, but you're being very careful to not say it. Uh, I feel like you're shitting on me that I should want to know. I don't want to (laughs) know. So you're saying when you were on your, when you had a period, you were never told anybody because it was your information to have and you didn't share that with anybody. Yeah. Even your husband didn't know? uh, He probably knew. There would be other reasons it might be relevant for him to know. Yes. Okay. So that's the only time that it's important for someone to know is when it's a partner. In some way relevant. If you and I were going to go swimming and you didn't want to swim while you were on your period, you could be like, oh, I'm on my period. I'd be like, oh, okay. What if I just didn't want to swim? And you could be like, I don't want to swim. And then you'd be like, are you on your period? (laughs) And I'd be like, that's personal. Why would you ask that? Uh, I do want to ask about this part of the book because you you started at community college and you decided that you would stop taking the pill. Did you talk to a doctor about that or did you just decide I'm an adult and I can make my own medical decisions so I will not tell anyone and I will just stop taking this medicine that I've been on for six years? I don't think I did talk to my doctor because at this time I had a doctor that I didn't like Mm -hmm. and um, I really didn't feel comfortable talking to her about things because she just she just kind of had this attitude that was very um, not like a supportive yeah. kind of attitude. And I hadn't started therapy yet. So no, I don't think I did. I think okay. I just stopped it because I didn't think my doctor would even care or would it, I didn't think the right. conversation would be um, full. So, and the, literally the only reason I was on them was because my periods were painful. And yeah. so, you know, I figured the doctor would be like, well, you want to deal with the pain you you know yeah, yeah so uh no i did not talk to anyone about it also i didn't put this in there and this is like a, an aside but the the last straw for why i got off the pill was they had just switched me to a generic version of my medication yeah and i was really upset that i couldn't get the like name brand version mm. and my mom's like it's the same thing i was like it's in a different container it's different colors i don't like this i want to be on what i was on and so that was my last straw. Hmm. I know that's like something really random. And when I did be- get back on the pill years later, I was on the generic and it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> but as the days and weeks went on, depression started to set in harder than ever before. It was slow, 
but it built into an overwhelming cloud of darkness. Everywhere I went, it followed. It was a heaviness that caused more pain with every step, every breath. I felt so much pain inside, but had no physical pain to show for it. I couldn't say, look, my arm is broken. This is what hurts. One day, the mysterious internal pain became so severe that after class, in my bedroom, I cut the inside of my left forearm with scissors. I needed to see the pain I felt inside. And for some reason, this is what my brain told me to try. It helped. The sting on my arm was enough to relieve the pain inside. It allowed me to go on playing the part of normal human in society. I didn't know how my brain came up with this way to cope. It just popped up as a thought and I saw it through to reality. I continued this ritual when I was depressed or when I just needed to feel something. A lot of anger was associated with my depression too. I would hit the punching bag in my room for about 20 minutes and then I would cut my arm. Hitting the bag helped get some of the anger and rage out before I took the scissors to my skin. I didn't even want to think about cutting my arm before punching the bag because if I'd taken all my pent-up anger out of my arm, I might have seriously cut myself. I always punch the bag, then cut. I always cut my arms and always with a pair of orange-handled scissors. This was the only thing that satisfied my pain. They faded or I would cover them up. This was not for others to know, see, or question. While in health class one day, I read about premenstrual dysphoric disorder, PMDD. It sounded just like me. The Mayo Clinic's website explains it perfectly. Premenstrual dysphoric disorder, PMDD, is a severe, sometimes debilitating extension of premenstrual syndrome, PMS. Symptoms usually begin 7 to 10 days before your period starts and continue for the first few days that you have your period. PMDD has at least one of these emotional and behavioral symptoms standouts. Sadness or hopelessness, anxiety or tension, extreme moodiness, marked irritability or anger. Treatment of PMDD is directed at preventing or minimizing symptoms that may include antidepressants, birth control, nutritional supplements, herbal remedies, diet, and lifestyle changes. There it was. Birth control can help. The pill might have been what kept my depression in check during my middle and high school days, but in community college, when I had nothing to fight the depression, my symptoms were in full swing. At the time, I noted that antidepressants were another possible treatment that seemed like a great way to get help without having to take birth control pills again. One day after class, I went to the gym and hopped on a treadmill. I walked on it like others were doing on the treadmills around me. I'm sure I seemed normal like them, but inside I was so depressed. I couldn't think of anything except not being alive anymore. I just kept walking in place and thinking about what it would be like to end my life. As I was drowning in these thoughts, I jumped back into reality and wondered if this meant I was suicidal. I didn't think I was because every time I had the thoughts, I arrived at the same conclusion. I can never do that to my family and friends. It would be so unfair to take my life, which would in turn really hurt the people I love, especially because they did not know I was experiencing such pain. That's when I made a decision. I would know I was suicidal and in need of help when I felt the need to write a suicide note. I could not kill myself without explaining why to my family and friends. I would not go through with anything without that simple act. 
Through my life, I've been lower than low. I spent days just wishing I was no longer on the planet, but I never wrote that note. I came close, but I could never do it. Not for the love of myself in those moments, but for the love of my family. Okay, I want to pause there because there's a lot to cover <laughs> in that um, before we move on. All right, so you talk here about, um, you talk in that section about needing to see the pain that you felt inside. At the time, would you have articulated it that way? Or is that really the benefit of reflection? It's definitely the benefit of reflection. I had no, it was messy. It was a messy time. Like I didn't know what was happening. I could not have articulated any of this back then. All I knew was I needed to see the pain and uh, well, and I didn't even know that I needed to see the pain, but it was just like, it was as if like, you know, there was something inside my body in every inch of my body that was like crawling out to get out and and I couldn't, and I had to get it out somehow. And that's how it came about. Um, I don't even remember making any kind of conscious decision of the location or anything. It just kind of happened. And you never tried other locations, right? Cause it says it was um, always on your arms in that time. It was um, after, and I don't know if I talk about it in, future in this time period that's all I ever tried but um in the future I did try other locations like the top of my arm like because that could easily be hidden with by, by a shirt I tried my ankles which was like weird and didn't satisfy like the arm like nothing satisfied like the arm um and I never tried razor blades or anything which is like pretty like common for you know people that deal with self-injury but it was always scissors orange handled scissors which is funny because if you notice, I have a pair of scissors, but they're purple handled. They're not here. orange handled. In and here, yeah. in my craft room, they are blue handled. And mm-hmm. so I actually do not use orange, orange handled, handled scissors anymore. When I see orange handled scissors, there's a there's still like a fleeting memory. Mm. It doesn't debilitate me because it's you know been so long removed. But um, I'm like, why do I even need that in my head in any capacity? So if you look at all my scissors, like in the garage, I have like black handle, red handle. They're all different colors. Orange handle is a specific brand that makes uh, makes that. And that's like their signature. Yeah. And they're pretty good scissors. Yeah. Well, this is the same brand, but right. they make other colors. And yeah. so I've specifically used that brand, but get um, other colors. So it, there's no like thought in my head. It wasn't like a thought in my head, like I'm going to use them. It was just like a thought of like the, you know. Why have the reminder? Exactly. When it's it's unnecessary. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I also appreciated what you said here um, in this chapter. You say, the sting on my arm was enough to relieve the pain inside. It allowed me to go on playing the part of a normal human in society. And I, that may not be a universal experience, but I think that is something that many of us can relate to. The idea that we are playing a part uh, and it actually is going to come up again later in the chapter, but the idea that what people, what we present is really um, not fully who we are. And it's because we just want other people to think we're okay. You know? Yeah. I spent so much energy like in, and, and people have like, uh, actually the doctor that I said, I didn't like in this book. Um, she, um, I have a whole nother doctor that I love now, but this doctor actually, when she learned about my self-injury, accused my mom of like, how did you not know? Why weren't you present? Like, did it like really, really harsh to my mom. I spent a lot of energy for no one to know about this, especially my mom. 
it would have been almost impossible for her to know. If you don't want someone to know something, they're not going to know. Right. I mean, have your kids ever lied to you about anything? Or I not would, told you? Absolutely. <laughs> Did I ever lie to my parents? Absolutely. Yeah. Is there stuff you didn't want them to know? Yes. Yes. I mean, there's, I think there's things that like, I've, I think there were, I can't even remember what it was, but I think there's something recently that I was like, you know, mom, I never told you this, but da da da. It was something stupid. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was, and she's like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. I was like, I know, because I didn't want you to. Right, right. Now it's like, it doesn't matter. I've told her like so many things that like kids wouldn't tell their parents, but right. it's just like, I don't care. <laughs> Yeah, there are some times where I'm like, oh, you didn't still need to tell me that. Yeah, even, <laughs> even now, I don't I don't need to know that you got away with that or that. Yeah. 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 Um, There's probably things <laughs> that she doesn't want to know about yeah. either. Um, you actually say it again in, this, in the part that we just listened to because you're talking about being on the treadmill mm-hmm. and you say, I'm sure I seemed normal. Yeah. With the people in the treadmills around me. But here you say that you all you could think of was not being alive anymore. But then it seems like you don't classify that as really suicidal thoughts. So I wanted to kind of understand the difference. Well, again, my brain was just didn't know what was going on, didn't know anything. So I don't think I like, well, I think I was trying to justify it to myself because at this time I didn't have medical support. Mm-hmm. I had the doctor that, you know, did prescribe me the medications, but I didn't feel comfortable with. And that's a huge thing is having trusting medical professionals. That's a hard thing, especially in today's day and age to find a medical professional you trust. But if I could encourage anyone to do anything, it's find the medical people you can trust and keep trying, keep trying, keep trying, because that's really um, something that is hugely beneficial for me is I have a great psychologist I can trust. I have a great primary doctor I can trust. And that is really what helps keep me, you know, on a, on a good path. Yeah. So I just kind of had tried to justify it to myself because all I knew this was 2005 and, you know, suicide has always been within the like conversation or the world, but more like when some, like someone famous dies mm-hmm. by suicide, you hear about it. Oh, it's so sad, but you don't really hear like anything more about it. Mm-hmm. And that's why we did an episode about suicide. We had an honest conversation a conversation about suicide, which we'll link in the show notes, but what's the meat and potatoes of that conversation that we never seem to have um, that is actually helpful. So for me, I just knew that people die from suicide and it's sad for the family. And I don't know how people get to that place or anything of context there. Um, But I just knew I didn't want to be around anymore. Does that mean I want to die? Does that mean, you know, so I just justified it to myself that if I wrote a note, because I justified that I couldn't die by suicide unless I wrote a note. But if I started writing a note, that's how I know I'm suicidal. That's just something that I yeah. had to justify to myself. You like put a barrier in your way. Yeah. Like a and so that's bump. in that, ca- down. I guess that helped me to be able to think it was okay to have those thoughts without mm. defining them as suicidal thoughts. I mean, I think it's a pretty human condition to think about not being alive, Mm -hmm. like to think about what if I wasn't here anymore? How would that affect my family? Like through my life, I've had those thoughts. And I don't think that that means I'm suicidal at that moment to have those thoughts. I think it's very uh, just like you. We've talked about before. You know, are you still a Christian if you think there's no God, if you question it? Mm -hmm. It's like. Of course you can question it. Of course yeah. you can have these like deep thoughts. I think that it makes us 
more human and makes us more connected to those things. It, it probably makes me more connected to life to think about not being here. And maybe giving yourself permission to think it through was better than trying to ignore or repress the feelings. Yeah, I think anytime we tell people like, you know, don't drink or don't mm -hmm. do this or don't do that, it, it never, like when you to completely tell someone to eliminate something, I, I think it's uh, it's just a slippery slope. So I think it was a way for me to justify at least having the thoughts. Okay, so this is not really about the book. This is about something uh, later, but I don't remember if it was, tw was it 2020 when we were in pandemic world? I kept a gratitude journal for a month. Do you oh, remember yeah. this? Yes. And what did you keep? Okay. So we had this idea. It was, I don't think it was during the pandemic. I think it was right before. Oh, was it? I think it was September before. Of 19. Okay. Yeah. I don't think I could have done it during the pandemic. No. So we had an idea to write a book together and, or I had the idea and I thought, wouldn't it be interesting? Like, you know how people say like the positive thoughts make a difference and da da da. And I was like, well, I wonder how true that is. And so I thought, what if I wrote every day for 30 days, a month, day, a, month yeah. a suicide note, like mm -hmm. a, I'm going to end it all note. And you every day wrote a um, gratitude note, what you're thankful for. And then at the end we would compare how we feel. And I think, how long did we get into it? I think I did it for almost a whole month. Oh, I didn't do it for a month. I, don't think, I think I did it for like a week and that I felt bad. Right. I did not like it at right. all. That was horrific. And um, it that was a really failed experience. I mean, I think we knew how it was going to end up, but that but it was failed faster than we thought. Yeah. Yeah. And I did not remember that this was in the book. <laughs> right. So if I had remembered <laughs> that your like speed bump for uh. yourself was to never write the note, I think I would have approached that project idea differently. No, but see, that was what I thought was interesting about it, is I was in a really good space mentally and I was just like the act of actually writing one, what would that be like? And also they all ended up kind of being the same mm. and then it just put me in a bad mood and I, yeah, and it wasn't a, you know, sometimes you have to try something to yes. realize that was dumb. <laughs> all right, let's get back to the book. While driving to class one day, the song, What Are You Waiting For?, played on the radio, and really spoke to me. It was the summer of 2006, and I was about to graduate community college with my Associate of Arts degree and move on to UCF and major in television production. The reality set in that I could not move from everything I'd ever known with my secret cutting life. I knew I would not make it on my own. I had to tell my mom. I knew she would be supportive and get me help. But to tell her about my secret world of depression and coping... That would be the hardest thing I ever had to do. I stopped at Target before class to buy the Natalie Grant album that the song I just heard on the radio was featured on. I listened to every song, which calmed me and gave me the courage to talk to mom. I was just two months away from moving to Orlando. A few days later, I was sitting in the passenger seat, a little warm because it was summertime and mom had turned the car off. We just sat. We were waiting for our usual Sunday after church restaurant to open. Then I got even hotter because I knew this was the moment. Mom, I have something to tell you, I said. I told her that I was depressed, had been cutting my arm, and wanted to get help. She sighed in relief and said, Is that it? Well, we'll get you help this week. 
Mom scheduled an appointment with my primary care doctor who prescribed me Zoloft for the depression. Then my parents found a psychologist and I started seeing her for counseling within a week. Before my first counseling session, I didn't know what to expect. I wondered if there would be a couch I'd have to lie on and if the doctor would ask me, how do you feel about that? All my therapy references came from TV shows and the shows never really got into how the healing happens. Dr. Jill's office was on the second floor of a law firm. So after I checked in at the desk, someone directed me to the stairs. I walked in and saw a couch with an armchair right across from it. Dr. Jill welcomed me and invited me to sit on the couch. From the very first session, therapy went really well. It was freeing to have dedicated time to talk to a psychologist and not feel judged. I told her about the cutting and the feelings I couldn't explain. She listened closely to me, asked questions, and took it all in. Dr. Jill told me that I'm not a cutter and not suicidal. My cutting, she said, was classic self-injury. I injured myself to feel, not to end my life. This news brought me huge relief. I didn't think I wanted to kill myself, but I was scared and didn't understand the complexities and differences in mental illness. She agreed that the selective serotonin uptake inhibitor, SSRI, medication should help with my depression. I could tell she didn't think self-injury was a great coping skill, but she also didn't make me feel bad about it or try to spend too much time correcting the behavior. Dr. Jill wanted to know about my life, my feelings, and what had happened to stir my emotions in the past. She encouraged journaling as a way to get my emotions out, which I've continued to use as a release ever since. I had six sessions that summer before I left for university. These sessions freed me up to talk about whatever was on my mind. I did not fear any of it getting back to my parents or being used against me. When I began to cry in a session, I would work hard to stop. One day, Dr. Jill looked at me with her kind eyes and said, Why are you working so hard at not crying? I don't want to be weak, I said, still fighting tears. Stephanie, there is no weakness in tears. It's the body's way of cleansing and getting emotions out. Crying is very important to life and recovery. I would like you to work on letting yourself cry at least once a week. There is emotional freedom in it. I did work on crying and sharing my feelings, but there was only so much progress I could make in the six sessions we had as I had 20 years of emotions to work through. I wanted to mention that this really made me feel old when I went to Target to buy a CD. I'm glad that you mentioned that because I was thinking that too. Like we probably should date stamp this, but you do say it was, you know, it was summer of 2006. Yeah, so it was is, towards the, it was like the iPod was out, um, but it was right in that time period when iTunes was a thing, but not truly a thing and people were still buying CDs. So it was like yeah. right towards that transition. I didn't buy a ton of CDs after this point, but isn't that weird? Yeah. I would never even think to go to a store now to buy a CD. I didn't actually realize right. they still sell them, but Taylor Swift just had a new album come out and I, I obviously got it on, I use Amazon streaming mm. and I got it on there, but then um, they have actual records. Yeah. That's what people Vinyl are buying. Albums. Yeah, I'm that's like, what people buy now. okay, you go all ahead right. and get your little record. Yeah. <laughs> but there's also CDs because I was at Target and they had all this Taylor Swift stuff. I was like, aren't people streaming it? What's, what's happening here? Right. I mean, even just about, even if we're just thinking about storage space, folks, come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And a CD record. cases take up a lot of room. Yeah. I mean, I got rid of CDs so long ago. Mm. Like, yeah, but yeah. The, wow. I felt, well, like I would just say, you know, I, I still spend a lot of my life in church.
church world because yeah. I'm a pastor and I work oh, in a church yeah. and we still have uh, VHS tapes. So, oh, yeah, it's a thing. All right. So when you told your mom you're sitting in the in the restaurant parking lot waiting for Sunny's, by the way. Yes. Waiting for some barbecue. And um, and sh- and you tell her and she sighs. I want to make sure that we understand her reaction, because my understanding is that it was that you received it as very supportive. Mm-hmm. But then when I reread it, I was like, oh, she said, is that it? Like it could be dismissive. Oh, is that all? Well, we'll take care of that this week. What's wrong with you? But that's not Miss Vicky. That's not how it is. Yeah, it wasn't dismissive feeling, but it was like, well, what happened was, and I didn't, I took this out of a, I put it in future drafts, but what happened was she thought I was going to tell her that I was a lesbian. Oh. (laughs) And so, which she was at, she would have actually been at the time she would have been fine with. She would even be way more fine now. She's like very much, if there's something pride, she's like, I'm buying it. Um, she's all, she's very supportive. Um, a lot of us have been on a journey to acceptance and inclusion. She would have been accepting at this time, not as like, she wouldn't have understood it anyways. I'm not a lesbian, but in, it was just totally cool if you are. And you know, she would have been supportive, but I guess that's what she thought. And cause she told me later. Yeah. And so I think her reaction was, Oh, okay. Well, that's not like, it wasn't what she was expecting. I guess. Yeah. Because I guess if I was, then maybe it was, she thought, I don't know. I don't know how that would have been easier than depression, but um, that's what her reaction was. And it was, um, it was the reaction I needed. Um, yeah, I didn't yeah. know what, how she re- would react, but it was definitely a reaction I needed. Yeah. Well, it definitely sounds like uh, it would be comforting because she was not at all overwhelmed or afraid. Yeah. Right. So she was like, okay, yeah, this is something that we can address. Yeah. And, and she you. wasn't judgmental. She yeah. wasn't like, what? How long have you been depressed? Why haven't you told me? You, nothing right. like that. Which I didn't think she would, but you have no idea. Like, yeah. you just don't know what could happen. And that was what was like playing in my head. And, um, you know, the anxiety and depression of it all. <laughs> right. And then you said, you mentioned a few minutes ago that when you went to the doctor and you got the Zoloft prescription that the doctor was hard on your mom. Yeah. I actually don't remember it. My mom remembers it better. Um, but because uh, I was, you know, I just yeah. like, okay, I need what I need. Okay, whatever. Um, but she said, yeah, like the doctor really came down on her and mm-hmm. just really made her feel like a bad mom. It's like, oh my gosh, that's not okay. Right. I mean, at this point you would have been like 20 years old. Yeah, right? I wasn't 21 06. yet. Yeah. So in this chapter, you talk about your first appointment with Dr. Jill. Yes. And Dr. Jill has been a guest on the podcast. So we'll definitely link to that in the show notes too. She seems I just saw really her great. this week actually. Um, yes. And I just was remembering, I was like, wow, it's been a long time. I've come a long way. Yeah. I, I, appreci- and she has too. She's not in the law office anymore. She has her own <laughs> office now. <laughs> I appreciated um, how you described her approach to it because she kind of gave you some context for what you were feeling and what you were experiencing. But then you say, I could tell she didn't think self-injury was a great coping skill, mm-hmm. but she also didn't want to make me, make me feel bad about it or try to spend too much time correcting the behavior. It's like she understood that, the coping mechanism was just a presenting symptom and that she was going to be working with you on what was underlying. Yeah. Because the, that was just a result of the things I hadn't dealt with. And that's something that I couldn't have understood at the time, but she understood as a professional. So she realized if we deal with the underlying stuff, then the, then the self injury is going to be way less Mm -hmm. and less, which was all true. I still was dealing with it because I had, so many things that I had to deal with that was not going to be dealt with in six sessions. And, you know, it took me years to really uncover the every layer of what the issues were. 
But at the time, I didn't really know. Like all the all I knew is I was going to her for depression and what I thought was cutting, but she called it self injury, and that's what I thought I was going to her for. Uh, but she actually specialized in um, in women's issues and specifically mm-hmm. like women that have been abused and those sorts of things. And I I was like, oh well, that's not my issue, but maybe she, she can still help. Mm-hmm. But in actuality, those were exactly my issues of why I was dealing with self injury. So it's it. Uh, she was the perfect person, actually. Right. right. And then when you were crying and yeah. and you were trying to not cry, even in a therapy session, right? Uh, because you thought that it made you look weak. Yeah, I still hate crying, but I still understand the importance of it. And I also encourage other people to cry. Like, I still remember when my grandmother was here and my my papu had recently passed away and she was talking about it and she started to cry and she apologized. And I was like, no. Never apologize. Like that's what I learned during that session. And I still personally don't like crying, uh, but I also like know the importance of it and will allow myself to cry. And I won't, and I won't apologize for it. That's something that um, I don't think any of us need to apologize for crying because, and it makes so much sense. It's like, it's a way to cleanse our body. Like what does rain do to the earth? That really helped me understand that, you know, that process better. I mean, probably a lot of us, maybe all of us have had a situation where we've had like that ugly cry yeah, and then you feel better. Yeah. You know, because yeah. you've gotten it out. Yeah. So yeah, that was really, that resonated with me for sure. At the end of the summer, I was as ready as I could be to venture into my new life in Orlando. My Volvo tightly packed with my belongings. But before I left, my friends threw me a surprise going away party. I had never had a true surprise party before and they really made me feel special. As most of them were staying in Tallahassee for college, it was a big deal that I was leaving the group. We had been so close for so long, and no one knew what the future held for our friendships. When the time came, my parents drove down with me and helped me move into UCF. My dorm was brand new and apartment style, with my own room and bathroom, and a shared kitchen and living room. Three other roommates shared the common area. It was the best of dorm life on campus, so I was thrilled it was available. My parents left, and for the first time, I was truly on my own. I would like to say those friends that threw me the party, I am still friends with them. How cool is that? That is cool. Is that the ladies? It's my ladies, yes. Um, So we've had a couple of them actually on the podcast, Emily and Megan. And um, yeah, so I think I'm still friends with, I'd have to look at pictures to see exactly who was there, but I think I'm still friends with all of the ones that were at that party. So that's pretty cool. That is cool. <laughs> that is cool. So at, when they were throwing you the surprise party and you were saying goodbye to everybody, did anybody know that you were using um, non-suicidal self-injury as a coping mechanism? I don't believe anyone knew in that group. I actually made a really good friend that I didn't mention in the book, but I, me- I made a really good friend at uh, Tallahassee Community College and we bonded over Gilmore Girls. We both loved that show. <laughs> And we um, we were really close for uh, those two years and a little bit after. And I told her she knew about the self-injury. And uh, I don't think my other friends knew my high school friends. I don't think because we were so we this wasn't right after high school. This was two years into college. And so um, they were two into two years into college as well. And we weren't super close for a long time. Like we would see each other like on holidays and stuff, but we were, you know, we were separated. So um, I don't think they knew. 
this was a good chapter. This was heavy stuff, but I, I appreciated um, being able to read it with you, you know, and to ask you questions about um, this really hard time. I mean, this was a big deal to, to acknowledge how you, you know, the coping mechanism you were using, but then also, you know, to, to talk to your mom about it, to, to, to start meeting with Dr. Jill, all of that. That's big stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to read the book like so many years after writing it and experiencing it. Um, but yeah, I do think that's a good chapter. Like if I'm like, if, if I'm like, if you need to read one chapter from the book, this is the one to read. I think it really like sets the tone for the whole book, but, uh, it could get you like excited about what's to come. Yeah. And, and I think it gets to the heart of the idea. Uh, I mean the, the big, the, the big aha for me is non-suicidal self-injury happens because you need to see the pain you feel inside. That's very clarifying for me. Yeah. You know? And why do you have that pain inside? Well, that's what you learn in therapy. Right. <laughs> right. You don't know it yet. But if you dedicate the time to learning and learning through therapy, then you can get there. It just, it's a process. You know, we're, we, uh, we are really getting into, into so much of what you have felt and experienced. Um, this is not at all like that, but I did want to tell you about a really weird dream I had. Uh, it was like, I like I woke up upset about it. Oh, um, actually just before we recorded this morning. Oh no. And was uh, I in it? No, oh. I, maybe it would have been better if you had been there. I don't know. I was preaching mm. naked. To, no, oh. no, I don't know my clothes. Um, I, I was preaching to a huge like auditorium, like a giant church and it was filled with young people mm-hmm. like, uh, like me young or Hannah young, like Hannah young. Okay. <laughs> like actually young, not formerly young. Yeah. Okay. Great. <laughs> like they always bought their music on iTunes. <laughs> never from a CD. They never bought a CD. Although they're into vinyl. It's weird, I know. Right? Uh, yeah, I get it. <laughs> um, anyway, I was, uh, like in one part of the dream I was preaching and then, you know, how you can have these like weird time warps mm-hmm. in the dream. And then I was like back before the service had started and I was talking with people and everybody was so excited to be there. And this was a church that was doing great things and it just so much energy. And for some reason I, Oh, you won't like this part, but for some reason I was passing out stickers. Like, I don't know. It was a thing. So then I go and I'm up on the, um, the stage. Right. And, I'm sitting down to preach, which is really weird. I would never do that in actual life, in actual real life. And people start like raising their hand to ask me questions during the sermon, which is not a thing. Don't do that. And uh, this one person, one young woman is like, well, um, I really, you, you say that it's important like to know ourselves, but my parents won't let me do the 23andMe DNA test. <laughs> This is a weird dream, right? And I was like, yeah, uh, I agree with your parents. They're right. You should never do that test. That's a terrible test. You shouldn't do it. And then, and then somebody else was like, I, or maybe I, maybe I said something like, uh, when you're, when you're older, you can decide if that's the right thing for you or something. And then the next person, remember guys, this is a dream. None of this makes any sense. The next person was like, well, we can all watch the movie scream when we're 16. Don't you think that means we're old enough to decide if we need a DNA test? And I was like, no, that's a terrible movie. You shouldn't watch that movie. I was just really being a jerk. And so hundreds of people got up and walked out on me. Aw, young people. Well, I love that that's how they wanted to get to know themselves was doing a DNA (laughs) test. First of all, that's hilarious that 
Like, what is my mind trying to tell me? What does this dream mean? That is so interesting because when you when the when the person stood up and says, I, "You said I need to get to know myself," I'm like, "Yeah, therapy and deep reflection," right, right. and it's like, "I want to do a DNA test." Wow. <laughs> yeah, that does sound like what a young person would want to learn to. Yeah. So, have you done a DNA test? No, I haven't. You don't think they're good? Uh, truly, I don't think that they're a good idea. Okay. Because but I don't know why that was in my dream. I don't. Why know. do you think they're not a good idea? I don't know what they do with the information. Yeah, that's why. Yeah. yeah. Also, I think that it maybe reinforces some unhealthy ideas that I carry about the value of race and ethnicity. That like it's it's better to be something over something else, and I just hmm. don't want to. I don't. I don't want to reinforce any of that in myself. I don't think that's a good idea. Interesting. I really like that it tells you. Like, um, it tells you a lot of random information that I think is just so interesting. Like it tells you what time you generally wake up based on your DNA. It's like, what? What? Yeah. Like what time you like average would get up. And then it tells you like, um, whether you like cilantro or not, like stuff like Mm. that. Like, obviously I already know I hate cilantro, but it's just like interesting that your DNA can tell you these kind of things. So I haven't done it and mine is for your, the first reason you mm-hmm. said was, I'm not sure what happens with this data, but I do think it's really interesting and I may do it one day um, because I just, I just, I've done it for my dog, for Mac. <laughs> and she likes cilantro. <laughs> um, she, uh, that wasn't on the dog one. But what's so interesting is I was like, I mean, it was stupid because she's a greyhound. She came back 100% greyhound. I was just yeah. kind of curious. Um, but there's like 200 genetic issues that dogs can have and she yeah. had none of them. Yeah. The one thing she had was bald thigh syndrome, which is really mm. funny because that's very common in greyhounds and it's just an aesthetic thing. And yeah. actually she doesn't have it. Her, <laughs> her thighs are fully hairy and it, it literally has no issue. So uh, that was just kind of funny to get yeah. those results. Yeah, I mean, no judgment to anybody that's decided to get the DNA test. My like, mom's I think, done um, yeah. Ancestry, yeah. and she really enjoyed it. And I, I think I got it for her for Christmas one year. She's yeah. really enjoyed it. I mean, there's a lot of them out there. And I think if you're going to do one, you know, do your research of what right. what people are saying about them. Um, but yeah, I might do it one day. I That's, yeah. a, that's so well, weird, though, that it was in your dream. It was just a really weird dream. And I was very, like, upset that I had ruined everything and that hundreds of people were walking young out. People. I mean, young you people. Young even. people even. Like, I personally, handedly, I single-handedly, like, destroyed the Not church. Not sure how you got them there. Right. But maybe free Probably vinyl. with free DNA tests. I'm not maybe. Sure. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. that's the secret. <laughs> <laughs> we do it right here. Everyone comes to the altar and we'll prick your finger. <laughs> and we'll stick this up your nose. Well, that was interesting. Thank you for sharing your dream. Did you fly at the end? I didn't. I Aww. just woke you up sat. mad. Yeah, you I sat. I just woke up. Yeah, I was just sitting there. Well, it probably has some long, deep meaning. It probably does. Or it has no meaning, and it was just what you were thinking about before you went to bed. Well, if you happen to be a special dream interpreter, and you can tell me what this dream means, please give us a call. Our number, you can actually call or text, right? Yeah. Yeah. Call or text 850-270-3308 and help me understand myself better and if beth really wants to understand her understand her herself better encourage her to get a dna test (laughs) because that's really the only way you're going to get to know yourself we have learned especially if you read my whole book the only way to get to know yourself is obviously a dna test (laughs) that was a joke yes it was hilarious it was hilarious 
At the end of each episode, we end with questions for reflection. These are questions based on today's show that Beth will read and leave a little pause between, or you can find a PDF on our website. Number one, have there been times you felt like you were playing the part of normal human in society? What was that like for you? Number two, have you experienced depression or mental illness and felt that you needed to hide it from other people? Number three, have you ever had thoughts of not being alive? How do you feel about that? And number four, do you apologize for crying? Why or why not? This has been the Discovering Our Scars podcast. Thanks for joining us. 